Welcome to this Gateway podcast. For more Gateway info, check out www.gateway-net.com. Enjoy. I want to finish the series that I've been doing the last three weeks on divorce. It's kind of one of those things that you don't want to tackle too often, um, but something needs to be said into the subject so that we know how to think Christianly about it, uh, and, and I've been trying to do that over the last few weeks. Um, if you're new this morning, you have to understand you've come in on the tail end of, of this study. Uh, very, very briefly, what I've said thus far is... Um, the Old Testament had four grounds for divorce, Deuteronomy chapter 24, sexual unfaithfulness, and then Exodus chapter 21 talked about a failure to provide food, a failure to provide clothing, and a failure to provide conjugal love. And if any of those were missing in a hard-hearted kind of manner in the relationship, then there were grounds for divorce. I summarized those. They seem kind of weird, you know, Old Testament, you know, food, clothing, and conjugal love. How does that translate into the 21st century? Well, basically, I summed it up as saying when there is a a hard-hearted sort of response to a partner in terms of material support, um, physical affection, and sexual faithfulness, when those vows are broken then I think there is a grounds for divorce because my conviction is the grounds of the Old Testament were affirmed by Jesus in the New Testament and we looked at um, what he said about that and, and I'm not going to take the time to go back but, but perhaps you're new and you're thinking, well, I can think of one scripture where Jesus said only unfaithfulness. We talked about that scripture and the context of that scripture. And uh, my conviction is that Jesus affirmed what the Old Testament had already laid down and uh, that Paul and the New Testament epistles did basically the same. It would be, I think, reasonably, not reasonably easy, but possibly it would be easy to listen to this series and come away with the idea that I have somewhat of a cavalier or casual attitude toward divorce. Because I haven't taken the line of no divorce, no remarriage that, that, that many churches over the years have. Um, I don't believe it's biblical. Um, I don't believe it's practical. Um, it's easy to say, but God never intended divorce. And that's true, he didn't. But he never intended sin either. And he made provision for both. Okay? Um, I don't have a casual or ca- cavalier attitude toward divorce. Uh, I, but I, I don't think the answer, theologically and pastorally, is to lift the bar so high in order to discourage people to divorce. I think that's what we've done. We, we don't want to see this happening, so we lift the bar. Well, you know, when you're dealing with people with broken legs and, and broken bodies and broken hearts and minds, they can't get up over the bar. And I'm not sure that that's a really good pastoral approach, just... You know, no divorce, no remarriage. So we've tried to look at it mercifully, kindly. We've tried to look at it biblically. But I want this morning to finish by kind of a a very sober message saying anyone mistakenly thinking that I think that divorce is a casual, cavalier kind of thing, you know, you just approach it any way you like. If it doesn't work, uh, well, whatever. Uh, You know, I said in one of the studies... um, I, I don't see marriage as just a disposable item as our culture does. I don't think we should approach that as, as biblical believers. 
And what I do want to do is talk about, if you do go down this track, you need to be aware of some things. And uh, I want to talk about the destructiveness of divorce. I want to start with a light-hearted story and then a parable, okay, uh, which J.R. Tolkien, I think, would call a true myth. But let, the first, the story. She spent the first day packing her belongings into boxes, crates, and suitcases. On the second day, she had the movers come and collect her things. On the third day, she sat down for the last time at that beautiful dining room table by candlelight, put on some soft background music, and feasted on a pound of shrimp, a jar of caviar, and a bottle of Chardonnay. When she had finished, she went into each and every room and deposited a few of the half-eaten shrimp shells dipped in the caviar into the hollow of the curtain rods. She then cleaned up the kitchen and left. When the husband returned with his new girlfriend, all was bliss for the first few days. Then slowly the house began to smell. They tried everything, cleaning, mopping, airing the place out. Vents were checked for dead rodents and carpets were steam cleaned. Air fresheners were hung everywhere. Exterminators were brought in to set off gas canisters during which they had to move out for a few days and and in the end even paid to replace the expensive wool carpeting. Nothing worked. People stopped coming over to visit. Repairmen refused to work in the house. The maid quit, and finally they couldn't take the stench any longer and decided to move. A month later, even though they had cut their price in half, they could not find a buyer for their stinky house. Word got out, and eventually even the local real estate agents refused to return their calls. Finally, they had to borrow a huge sum of money from the bank to purchase a new place. The ex-wife called the man and asked how things were going, and he told her the saga of the rotting house. She listened politely and said that she missed her old home terribly and would be willing to reduce the divorce settlement in exchange for getting the house back. Knowing his ex-wife had no idea how bad the house reeked, he agreed on a price that was about one-tenth of what the house was worth, but only if she signed the papers that very day. She agreed. And within the hour, the lawyers delivered the paperwork. A week later, the man and his girlfriend stood smiling as they watched the moving company pack everything to take to their new home, including the curtain rods. (laughs) I read that to my wife and her eyes glinted, even though through the pain I could see the eyes glinting. That's a light-hearted introduction to an overwhelmingly depressing subject. And though funny, the joke poignantly illustrates the fact that divorce stinks. What follows is a parable, a fictional story, illustrating the truth of a true myth. One of the most interesting customs of the Mobutu tribe in Central Africa is the kablok, the marriage bull. The family members of the bride and groom all donate goods and services that are used to trade for a valuable young bull from proven stock. This bull provides a good foundation for the couple's new herd and a solid financial start for the new family. A bull with good bloodlines has the potential to foster security and wealth for the new family for generations. There seems to be a special, even supernatural, blessing upon these bulls. They usually live longer than normal, sire more calves, and seem to be resistant to disease more than other bulls with just as good bloodlines. The Kablak also, and most importantly, serves as a living reminder of the treaty established between the two families and the marriage covenant established between the bride and the groom. 
If for any reason the husband or the wife chooses to break their marriage covenant and divorce, the bull is killed. In the Mabutu tribe, if a person loses their spouse to death, the Kablok lives on as a lasting reminder of the relationship. It is a sign of the covenant between the families and helps ensure the continued interaction of the related families for the children's sake. However, if a Mobutu couple divorces, they must kill the Kablok and cut it into pieces and chain everyone in both families and even close friends to pieces of the rotting meat. The size of the piece is determined by how important that relationship was to the individual at the time of the divorce. Sadly, as a rule, young children are chained to the largest pieces because much of their emotional, psychological and spiritual development is dependent upon the health of their parents' relationship. As one would expect, these decaying pieces of flesh foster many kinds of sickness and disease that negatively affect everyone in the community, not just those who are chained. Even after the flesh is rotted away, the bones and chains may be passed down for generations unless the tribal medicine man intervenes and sets them free. Unfortunately, in some tribes, the medicine man believes that these chains actually help deter future couples from divorce. Therefore, they do little, if anything, to free the people who are currently chained. Many of the medicine men refuse to perform wedding ceremonies for or recognize the marriages of people who have previously killed a kablok. They... They do this in an effort to punish these people for allowing the divorce and to deter others from doing the same, believing that their God has commanded them not to do so. Tragically, increasing numbers of Mabutus are ending up chained to several pieces of rotting flesh from their parents' kablak and their own. This has caused deadly epidemics that have virtually wiped out entire villages. It's a sobering parable, and I'm sure that you can see woven through that Central African parable some truths that are very, very relevant for we in evangelical churches who face this issue of divorce and remarriage. I want to just talk about the destructiveness of divorce this morning. You need to have balance what I want to say this morning with what I have already said, okay? Um, Philip Yancey says this, Divorce represents one of the greatest health hazards facing modern society. It dramatically increases the likelihood of early death from strokes, heart disease, hypertension, respiratory cancer, and intestinal cancer. Suicide rates are double for divorced people. A divorced non-smoker faces roughly the same health risks as a married person who smokes a pack or more of cigarettes a day. That's just scientific. That's not religious. Divorce is destructive in every way. What I want to do this morning is just very, very briefly look at a passage that's probably pretty well known in terms of this whole subject of divorce uh, from the book of Malachi. This is the passage where that one scripture that everybody who talks about divorce speaks of, and they know that it comes from this passage. I hate divorce, says the Lord. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about that later. I've commented on that pretty much every talk I've given on this subject, simply to say that I, I think that we look at that from a a wrong perspective. I think we look at it from the perspective of God being angry about divorce and pretty much close to being angry at divorcees. I hate it when people do that, rather than the fact that God says, I hate it when that happens. And the reason he hates it when that happens is because God himself is a divorcee. 
The Bible talks about the fact that he committed himself to the nation of Israel in a covenant that he, he likened to a marriage relationship. It came to a place where his spouse had so violated those vows that he finally wrote them out a divorce certificate. And God knows the pain, the hurt, and the rejection that divorce brings. And that's why he says, I hate it when that happens. It's not, I hate it when people don't do what I tell them to do. But it's, I hate it when I see people's lives getting torn to pieces by this thing called divorce. Let's look at the passage, okay? It's Malachi chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. It goes like this. You ask why he no longer accepts them. This is your sacrifices. It is because, you know, it is because he knows that you have broken your promise to the wife you married when you were young. She was your partner. And you have broken your promise to her, although you promised before God that you would be faithful to her. Didn't God make you one body and spirit with her? What was his purpose in this? It was that you should have children who are truly God's people. So make sure that none of you breaks his promise to, this, to his wife. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. I hate it when one of you does such a cruel thing to his wife. Make sure that you do not break your promise to be faithful to your wife. I want to just show you three things from this passage of Scripture, okay? Three things that divorce does or destroys. And the first is that divorce destroys a spiritual bond. That passage says, although you promised before God that you would be faithful to her, you weren't. Didn't God make you one body and one spirit with her? That's a reflection, by the way, of going right back to Genesis where God said he'd join Adam and Eve and that they would become one flesh. Jesus talked about that too. There is something that transpires when we stand before God and before our family and friends and make a commitment to one another. I, my own personal belief is that at that moment there is something that is woven into those two lives that binds them together. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about a rope of three cords. It says that you know, one, two is better than one, but three is a, is a is a rope that's not quickly broken. And I think that when we stand in that marriage covenant and commit our lives to one another, there is something of a work of God that binds not just two strands, but three. A man, a woman, and the God that they serve. And to break that is... You don't do it casually. You don't do it in a cavalier manner. There's something incredibly significant about the breaking of that, of that rope. The Bible talks beyond that of the consummation of that commitment in, in, in the sexual encounter between the man and his wife. There is, there is a joining of two hearts, two minds, two bodies. The Bible talks about it becoming one flesh. Now, some people teach that that binding is absolutely indissoluble that God does not recognize any other relationships apart from that one, that once those commitments are made and it is consummated with a sexual encounter, then, then that relationship is indissoluble from that moment on. I, I don't believe that. Indissoluble means it cannot be broken. I believe the scriptures teach it should not be broken, but the reality is I think it can. I think it can. And there is something incredibly destructive in the pulling apart of those lives. When you take a piece of timber and you laminate another piece of timber on top of it, okay, you try and pull that apart and you no longer have two pieces of whole timber. Because what happens is the lamination process bonds them so significantly that when you pull them apart, the, the, the pieces of timber rip and tear. 
In our society, we have people bonding and tearing, bonding and tearing, bonding and tearing, and we wonder why our families are dysfunctional. We wonder why we lack wholeness. There is something incredibly destructive that takes place through divorce. There is a spiritual bond that is torn and rent. And, and I don't think it should be just regarded as casual and cavalier. I don't think anybody comes out of a divorce whole. That's my conviction. And that's my experience. The second thing that I want you to see is that divorce destroys a godly seed. Verse 15 says, what was the purpose of this binding process? When you made the commitments to one another and God bound you together, what was the purpose? It says the purpose was that you should have children who are truly God's people. One translation says that you would raise up a godly seed. When two Christians come together, committed heart, mind, soul, body, into that relationship children are born and God intends that those children would grow up in that atmosphere to love Him, to serve Him, to honour Him and for themselves to have good godly marriages with good godly kids. That's, that's the process. But what happens is when the marriage is broken by divorce... Children are damaged. We all know that by experience. Divorce is never simply between a man and a woman. It affects children, I believe, including unborn women. There's a fascinating book that should be read by every person who is contemplating divorce. It's not a Christian book. Um, it's, it's called The Unexpected Legacy, Legacy of Divorce, and it's a 25-year study by three people, Wallerstein, Lewis, and Blakesley. It's a fascinating book, and, uh, and it traces children from broken families for a 25-year period to see what sort of things would result. What sort of impact has the divorce had upon these children? Uh, the book actually com commences by referring to an episode of Sesame Street that screened in 1999. And Kermit the Frog is a, a reporter and he's interviewing this little bird. And he asks where the little bird lives. And, and it responds happily that it lives part of the time in one tree with its mother and the rest of the time in another tree with its father. And the little bird concludes merrily, they both love me and runs off to play. From this we are meant to conclude obviously that divorce is a minor upheaval that really doesn't do much lasting damage. The authors state that the little bird's story just simply doesn't match the experience of human children growing up in the context of divorce. In this exhaustive study they conclude that there are two faulty myths that undergird much of you know, the divorce highway, people who travel down the divorce highway buy into these two myths and, and they affect significantly our current cultural attitude towards divorce. And the first is this, if the parents are happier, then the children will be happier. How many times have you heard that said in various ways? You know, I'm unhappy and the children are unhappy. I know that if I divorce and I'm happy, then it will be good for the children. You know what? The researchers came to the conclusion that such an attitude totally disregarded the worldview of the child and how they actually think. They claim that many parents trapped in unhappy marriages would actually be very surprised to find that the children are relatively content. I'm not talking about houses that are torn apart by violence and things like that. But, but not every divorce is a result of violence. A lot of them are just, you know, there's a bit of antsy and ante and then finally it gets inflamed and they decide they're going to separate. In, that, in those instances, children actually, they found, don't care if mum and dad sleep in different bedrooms so long as the family is together. 
And the cold, hard reality is that children in post-divorce families do not, on the whole, have happier lives. They aren't healthier. They aren't better adjusted, even if one or both of the parents are happier. National studies show that children from divorced and remarried families are, first of all, more aggressive in their relationships, particularly as it pertains to to parents and to teachers. They have more learning difficulties. They suffer from more problems with their peers than children from intact families. They are at least two or three times more likely to be referred for psychological help. Help. They are more likely to end up in mental health clinics and hospital settings. They experience earlier sexual activity. They have more illegitimate children and they have increased divorce rates in their own relationships. Okay? Th- these are sobering facts. These aren't Christian facts. These are just facts. Divorce is damaging. Okay? And if people are going to go down there, they need to understand that though the children might see you happier, it doesn't mean that they're going to be happier. The second myth is this, that divorce is a temporary crisis whose harmful effects really only felt at the time of the breakup. It assumes that children are incredibly resourceful and very resilient, and although this is a hiccup, they will soon recover. This is supposed to happen, by the way. This recovery is supposed to happen, regardless of the betrayal, the abuse, the abandonment that caused the divorce, and the rejection and the guilt that the children often experience as a result of the divorce. I don't know how many times I have heard a child or perhaps a grown person say uh, something to the effect that they felt guilty about their parents' breakup. They felt that if only they had behaved better, if only they had done this, that, and the other thing, their parents wouldn't have broke up. Somehow they took the guilt of the breakup on themselves. It's very, very uh, common. This belief, by the way, that it's a temporary crisis is totally misguided. Divorce has long-term effects. Parenting cut loose from, the, from its moorings in the, in the marital context uh, is often less stable. Uh, it's more volatile. It's less protective of the children. How many times do we know of children being physically or sexually abused, not by their biological father, but by the stepfather who's been brought in, or by one of the many men that parades through the house. Parenting outside of the marital context is very, very volatile most of the time. The reality is divorce is a life-transforming experience. Everything following the divorce for the children is different. Childhood is different. Adolescence is different. Adulthood is different. Trite platitudes, which is what they are, about being better for the children, just don't cut the mustard. They don't match the reality. I'm not going to quote all of the findings of this book. They are bleak. They're not hopeless, but they are bleak. And it does match the wisdom of the old Chinese proverb that says, in a broken nest there are no whole eggs. I'm not saying this to create guilt because I realize there are some people out there who are divorced and you're thinking about your children and the impact that your decision has made on your children. I'm not, I'm not saying this to create guilt or anxiety. I'm also not saying that it, sh- that it should rule out divorce as an option. In the last studies, we have seen clearly that divorce can be an option when there is a cold, hard-hearted, regular breaking of marital vows. So... What I'm saying needs to be weighed against what I've said. But, but I'm, I am suggesting that you need to go into divorce if that's where you're going with very, very clear thinking and not with some 
woolly myths that have guided your decision. Realistically, divorce might solve some of your problems, but it will create some other ones that you need to understand. If you're contemplating a course of action like that, I think you need to be thinking wider than simply what is best for me. If you are thinking along those lines, can I say to you, weigh your decision carefully, take your action prayerfully, and don't do it without some counsel. Don't do it without seeing somebody that you trust that you can talk this thing through with, okay? It's not a minor decision. It's a life-transforming decision for both you and any children that are involved in the choice. The third thing I want to just mention is that that passage talks about divorce covering our garments with violence. It says, For I am against the putting away of a wife, says the Lord God, the God of Israel, and against him who is clothed with violent acts, says the Lord of armies. So give thought to your spirit and do not be false in your acts. This verse, by the way, is a very, very difficult one to translate. This is the verse that says, I hate divorce, says the Lord. And the covering of garments with violence. That's how kind of the King James relates it. It's an incredibly difficult verse to translate. And there are a lot of translators who actually say that this isn't about the Lord hating divorce, but that the verse actually should be translated, he who hates and divorces covers his garments with violence. And in actual fact, that would take that phrase that we hear so often, you know, the Lord hates divorce, right out of the equation, because it's actually possibly not what the passage is saying at all. Now, I'm not, I'm not throwing that away, and it might well be, as I've explained up to this point, that God does hate divorce, but the reason he hates divorce is, as I've explained, Not because he just gets really ticked when people don't do what he says, but because he feels the pain. But it may in actual fact be that the Lord really sees people who act with with cruelty and hatred, putting away their spouse with just such a hard heart. And the Lord says that's equivalent to covering your garments with violence. I think I think what we're talking about here, you know, is not literal garments, but you know, the Bible talks about garments of praise and garments of salvation. The reality is there is something of violence that covers the garments of people who go through that rending, tearing process. You know, for every time you hear, well, our divorce was amicable and we are still the best of friends. Number one, I always want to say, well, if you're the best of friends, how the hell did you get to this point? Excuse the language. But I I want to shake them and think, you know, get off the grass. If you're amicable and the best of friends, why didn't you work through the relationship for the sake of the children? So maybe there are amicable divorces where people end up best friends. I'm, I'm not so sure that, that they even exist, but if they do, for every one of those, I could introduce you to 20 where they aren't best friends and the emotional bloodletting that went on over the divorce has stained the garments of all involved probably for a lifetime, short of a miracle. You know, that study by Wallerstein, Lewis and Blakesley talked about 25, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds who were still deeply troubled, marred, and the way they did life really came out of a traumatic breakup of their parents. They, They never recovered. Their lives literally stained by it. And the Bible talks about the emotional bloodletting that goes on and the violence that affects people. Parents who, without thought, use their kids as pawns against their partners. 
you know, manipulating, maneuvering, um, you know, the, the, the ability of a partner to see their children and, 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 and setting one against the other and the emotional bloodletting that goes on. It's not, it's not that hard to understand what the scripture means when it talks about divorce, covering our garments with violence. You know, divorce is, is destructive. It destroys a spiritual bond. It destroys a godly seed. It mars and taints our lives with a sense of violation pretty much for all of our lives, short of a miracle of God. And if what I've said in these previous three weeks can anyway be construed as being casual and cavalier toward divorce, I hope that you hear this message, because that's not how I feel. I don't think people should just, oh well, we'll start again. It's not that easy, and nobody gets out of it whole. Some of you have been sitting there this morning, and I want to finish just with this thought. Um, you're thinking, you know, I've been damaged by divorce. My parents were divorced, and, and I do feel the pain of that. Uh, I do feel the strain of it. I know that it's affected the way I do relationships. Or maybe you have divorced, and you're thinking about your kids. And, and the parable of the cablock, you know, dragging around the rotting pieces of flesh, dragging around the bones, the chains, maybe sometimes even several pieces of flesh because being remarried divorced twice in our culture is not that unusual now you know and and you're thinking well you know so you you just made my day Don I come along you know feeling kind of not so bad I leave church and I feel stink you know I feel like the curtain rods in the first story this is this is never going to leave me listen the God we serve is a redeemer the God we serve, Jesus, we call him our Redeemer. A Redeemer is somebody who takes broken things and with a miracle touch is able to turn them around so that they become functional once again. I don't think we should think, well, if God redeems, then hey, I can go this course and he'll make it better again. You know, Paul talked about that when he talked about the grace of God reaching out to a sinner. He said there will be some people who will hear this message and the way they'll interpret it will be, well, if God's so gracious, then surely I can just go on sinning because he looks good with, he pours grace on my life. And he said, don't think like that. God forbid that we should think like that. And I feel the same way about this. Anybody who can come up with, well, since God's a redeemer, I'll just take this course of action and I know he'll fix it down the line. God forbid that we should think like that. But having said that, if you're in the situation where you feel like you are dragging that stuff around, it's not hopeless. There's there's hope. There's a redeemer. There's somebody who loves you and says, I will step in and we will start a process of restoration. It won't be without pain. You know, as most restorations are not without pain. But there's hope. And as we finish this morning, I'm going to invite the prayer teams to come. And if you have been through a divorce. Maybe you're the child of a divorce and are worried about your own relationship. You know, I don't want to sound um, mysterious, that's the word I'm looking for, or mystic, but but my conviction is that once divorce settles in on a family, very often you actually get a spirit of division and divisiveness that locks into that situation and just visits down through the generations. And it's not just a sociological fact that divorced kids who've been through a divorce divorce more often. It's, that's not just sociological. It's not just what they learn. I, my, my deep conviction is there's something spiritual that locks into that and it needs to be broken. 
And, and, you know, you can pray. You can come and get people to pray for you. We'll stand with you. We'll ask the Lord that that chain that's dragged around the, the bones and the rotting piece of flesh can be, can be unchained and you can be set free. Okay? And that's how we're going to finish. Um, I've, I, I'm, I've had no complaints. You know, I joked about the first time I started the, the, the series and said, you know, we've got a fire. We had a fire drill at the end of the first message I did on divorce, and, and I arranged it deliberately so that in the confusion of the fire and everybody escaping, I could get out and head for the hills because I was sure there'd be somebody after me with at least fire extinguishers or a hatchet. Because a lot of us were raised in circles that just said, no divorce, no remarriage, that's biblical. And here's me saying, you know what, I think it's wider than that. I've been both gratified and mystified that there hasn't been one complaint. Maybe you've been saving them up for the end. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm happy, but I'm a little confused. Um, if you do need to talk about it, I, I understand. I realize that for some of you it will be a, uh, maybe a new approach. What I'd recommend is that you go back and uh, torture yourself by listening to the series one more time. Maybe get uh, some reading material on the subject, and I really do recommend David Instone Brewer, um, who's a Baptist pastor from the UK who spent pretty much uh, the last few years just researching this. I found his material fabulous. And uh, as you are listening to the series and reading the book, you'll see where I've drawn a lot of the material from. At the end of that, if you need to talk... Um, Get hold of one of our pastoral staff. We'd be glad to sit down and talk through the issues with you. Other than that, I'm done and I'm glad to be alive. Let's stand. Just before we pray, there is one more thing that nobody in this church is allowed to do today. You are not allowed to go and buy shrimp or caviar. Okay? Um, you can do what you like with the Chardonnay, but the shrimp and the caviar, I don't want to hear that you've gone to Pack and Save and bought a pound of it, all right? Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to come together and to be able to talk. Thank you for the freedom that we enjoy. Um, we so appreciate our nation. We so appreciate our liberties. Um, Lord, we don't take them for granted. And beyond that, the things that you've done in our lives are amazing. You're an incredibly faithful redeemer. We stand in awe, amazed. Were the whole realm of nature ours to give, Lord, it would be an offering way too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. And Lord, we gladly give it to you. We bless you. We honor you. We worship you. Lord, would you touch lives and hearts with the truth of your word? Would you bring liberty to people that have walked with chains? Would you bring light into people that have lived in darkness? Would you bring release to people that have felt the torment of broken relationships round about them? Lord, we ask by the power of your Spirit that you would make the truth set us free for Jesus' sake and to honor him. Amen. Amen. Once again, thanks for listening to this Gateway Podcast. For sermon notes and more information, check out www.gateway.com.